اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم ان دا نیم آف اللہ دا موسٹ گریشیس ایور مرسفو پیس اینڈ بلیسنگز آف اللہ بی پون یو آل ڈی لسنر ایٹ از ونس ڈے دا فرسٹ آف نومبر ٹوینٹی In the Voice of Islam studio by myself, your usual Wednesday presenter, Muhammad Attar, and a brother, Nuruddin Jangir. Peace be upon you, brother. How are you doing this morning? Assalamu alaikum wa Peace be upon you too. Alhamdulillah, doing, doing okay. Just um, excited to get yeah. delve into the show today. You know, this, this year went, uh, I think it went quite fast. We're almost at the end of 2023. Had, it blinked a few times and yeah. <laughs> we're towards the end of November yeah, already, Yeah, literally, right? literally. It's like only two months left and then we'll be in 2024. I'll start thinking about resolutions <laughs> supposedly in six years uh, the line project will be complete as well in 2030 so <laughs> let's see looking forward to that one yeah. uh so as always you know we discussed the the news and the weather uh in the you know just before we get into our segments the topics of the morning we've got an interesting lineup of topics for you guys as well as well as we'll be interviewing some very you know esteemed guests as well so the first segment will be covering increased number of people waiting 18 months for nhs care And in the second segment, we will be discussing the Hamas-Israel war, upholding basic human rights. So, uh, God willing, you know, that will be an interesting one. Uh, and as always, you know, now we will just uh, cover the weather and the news. In terms of the weather, you know, uh, I'm sure everyone is aware, <laughs> everyone living in England, they can just look out the window and just, you know, maybe fall into a bit of, uh, you know, weather depression as you could say <laughs> um a seasonal affective disorder you could say because uh, you wake up in the morning it's it's cloudy it's a bit dark you go to work and then uh, around 4 4:30 starts getting dark again and then you know you come home it's still dark and it's like the days they feel shorter as well and it's just uh, well they are shorter they, they? are shorter <laughs> they are shorter because you know an hour has gone back as well but it's just it doesn't feel good No, it's not my favorite time of the year. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people love the winter and they say, oh, the snow and this and that. But I think there's so many issues that come with it. You know, the traffic problems, yeah. the, you know, the illnesses that come with it. Mm. I mean, it's all aesthetically, it's quite nice. Yeah. But um, in practice, it's not very, mm. um, it's not the best, best the, of days. The, the fog, the rain. Yeah. And you know the 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 little flu, the little cold that people get. Yeah, it's it's really annoying. I mean, I look at countries like Canada where you know they have snow, like mm. heavy snow. Yeah. And um and I and I really like I appreciate how ours is quite mild. <laughs> but then I look at other sunny places and I'm like, yeah. oh, we got, I wish we were in that that kind of climate right now. Yeah. And at the same time there's people in in other parts of the world where there's um you know hot, hot climate and they're mm. they're looking at the UK and thinking, oh, I'd love to have just a little bit of snow here and there, a bit of rain. Yeah. For them it's like a it's like a kind of mercy. Um you know, to take them away from all the heat. Mm. But I mean, yeah, the 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 weather today Um, at the moment it's 13 degrees yeah. um, Celsius and um, it does look like there will be rain throughout the day. Hmm. Um, there will be highs of, um, what is it, like 13, isn't it? Yeah. No, 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 higher than 13 and hmm. lows of, I'd say, 10. Um, but yeah, going ahead, I think this rain is going to continue for a few days intermittently. Hmm. Thursday we have about similar, we have similar temperatures and similar rain. Yeah. Friday seems a bit more more bright, a bit more sun. Hmm. And then back again, Saturday, a bit more rain. So we're yeah. back to our usual British weather, um, one <laughs> that we used to. Uh, you know, like if you're if you're if you have a car, you're driving around, you'll see there's a lot of uh, roadworks happening Absolutely, with those temporary yeah. tra- uh, traffic lights as well, where you have to wait for like at least three minutes for the traffic light to go green, even though there's no cars, yeah. like crossing, and 
I remember <laughs> yesterday. Yeah. I remember yesterday. <laughs> I left home to go shopping. Yeah. By the time I came back, both roads uh, mm. in that direction and on the way back were filled with, with cones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, they That's did that quickly. <laughs> so, so the road I personally live on, like yeah. they closed the entire road on one end, so I'd had to drive around to go yeah. to work, and then after th- they finished with that, a few days, they closed the other end of the road. Yeah. Completely, yes, like yeah. not even just one side. Completely, they're like the road is closed. They're really quick to start yeah. it, but then yeah, <laughs> and then it takes the actual work yeah. takes a long time. I got a actually got a letter in the mail <clears throat> saying something about road safety, and I was like, oh no, have I got like some <laughs> kind of penalty or something? Yeah. <laughs> have I done something wrong? But it was just a notice to all the neighbourhood that um, mm. you know the road that we do live on um, in a few days is going to be blocked off completely on one end for five six weeks. So let's see, that's yeah. going to cause more traffic for me. <coughs> but um, yeah, I mean, let's um, <coughs> let's turn to the the news headlines. What do you think? Yeah, of course. Let's move on uh, to the news. So you know, I mean, it's, um, it's, there's a bit of a change in the yeah. um, in the front papers mm. um, today because um, we're used to having a lot of the you know the Hamas Israel mm. the war that's going on there, and, and rightly so. It's a big it's a big topic and you know, yeah. something that which is affecting the whole world. Um, but at the same time, we've had um, you know the inquiry into the COVID. Uh, situation the way that it was handled by the government hmm. and the Wednesday's front pages are quite dominated by the by these revelations the i newspaper focuses on the diary entries of the for the UK's former chief scientific advisor yeah. sir patrick valance in which he wrote that <coughs> former pr- prime minister boris johnson allegedly thought that the old people should accept their fate hmm. and he agreed with uh, some of his um tory members saying that you know they're just uh, a lo- there's a lot of people who are you know, who just taking them the beds that they require, yeah, yeah. and uh, they don't actually need to be there. Hmm. And you know, these people, the old people, are the ones that you know should take the brunt of it, you hmm. know, just to save spaces and to save the save yeah. the economy hmm. or whatever you want to call it, hmm. make it easier for the for the country. Um, and I mean, that's a bit abhorrent in my in my in my view. And Most I'm sure a lot of a lot Most of definitely. those who are in that situation themselves will be thinking, this is the value that yeah. you know our prime minister yeah. has for us. He thinks that we should just basically just lay down and die. Hmm. Um, so I'm sure that's I mean rightly so this has obviously mm. garnered some attention and mm. a lot of people will be angered by that Yeah. Um, just generally I remember just during COVID as well a lot of mm. people were um, criticising the way the government had um, approached it anyway Yeah. Um, but these revelations I mean it just brings it to, to a new level mm. Definitely. Uh, the Times Definitely. also focuses on the same line of uh, from the COVID inquiry as well as covering a number of other stories on mm. its front page including King Charles's visit to Kenya um, where he didn't apologize, but he expressed his sorrow for, um, you know, and the deepest regret at the unjustifiable acts of violence carried out by by Britain hmm. against the Mau Mau rebels in the 1950s. Sakir Starmer's threats are also mentioned there to his shadow ministers to stop calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. That's a bit of a strange one. I thought yeah. I thought Labour would probably be championing peace hmm. in in that sense um, and trying to challenge hmm. um, the government on. On this subject, yeah, but um, it appears that it's um, more of the same. Hmm. Um, yeah, de- what do you think definitely. about that? Um, I I don't know. Like, you know, they 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 try and uh, say that you know they stand for change. Yeah, they stand for a better government. They stand for better values, uh, and better. They will be better for the you know the working man. Yeah, the working class man. But you know, if if that is your values, that is what you stand for. Then you know, you should be obviously, you shouldn't be supporting atrocities that are happening across the world absolutely right in, in in the sense that if there is if they are if the world is calling for a ceasefire what, what is what benefit can you gain from not supporting the ceasefire 
Absolutely. I mean, right. it seems like they're they're just tuning into maybe what the pub, the voters will hmm. will want. Hmm. And that's something which has been quite recurrent recently. Yeah. Like, you, you, you think know, about Brexit you, as well. Obviously, the... What Hamas, you know, initiated yeah. the attack they did. It was completely out of line, out of bounds, and completely wrong. Yeah. We completely condemn it because it goes against not just the teachings of Islam, but goes against the teachings of humanity. Yeah, right. It's completely wrong, but uh, you know the retaliation. You know, it's not. It's not of equal proportion. First of yeah. all, it's 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 on such a larger scale, and even if it was on equal proportion, many innocent civilians are dying. And they are casualties. I mean, sh- I mean, we're obviously going to delve yeah. into this subject a lot yeah, more. Yeah, in the we, we will segment. be discussing this, and we do have yeah. a guest caller as well that we'll be speaking with. Yeah, the, I mean, as I said, we, I could, I could just yeah. start right now. We yeah. could do the whole, the whole, the show whole show, the whole show on this. Yeah, but, but um, just to, yeah. so that we can get the rest of yeah. it in as well, let's um, we can focus on a few mm. more things before we we really get into that. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dominic Cummings was one of the one of the chief people who um, mm. who gave his his views about what happened. Um, but he was, I think, slightly embarrassed as well by some of the the messages that he was sending yeah. uh, in the groups as well hmm. at the time during the COVID, um, you know, the whole uh, epidemic. Yeah. Um, the Daily Mail says that Dominic Cummings was left squirming hmm. during Tuesday's COVID inquiry session hmm. after his explosive and expletive riddled messages were read out hmm. and gasps were heard in the room as one message was read out, read aloud in which uh, Mr. Cummings used a vile four-letter word to describe a former cabinet secretary, the mail says. Yeah. Um, so it says that you know, the headline is now Cummings feels the heat. So they think it's kind of backfired on him as well to show that he also kind of fueled this um, narcissistic um, approach or this, yeah. you can say this attitude that was within the within the government. Hmm. Um, but again, Boris Johnson, he's the, you know, the buck stops with him. Hmm. And he's the one that has to make the decisions. So people yeah. have been saying in the past how um uh, how you know how much of a fool he can be hmm. and the, how he shouldn't be anywhere near power i mean the star i think did a the daily star sorry they did a quite funny um headline hmm. they're saying britain an apology now if it's not the apology that you think it's going to be this says the daily star may have given the impression over the past few years yeah. that boris johnson and co were useless moronic inept pointless and pathetic clowns who were all out for themselves. Hmm. It turns out they're much, 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 much worse than that. <laughs> we are happy to set the record straight. <laughs> so a bit of sarcasm there as well. Yeah. Um, and, show, and it's showing, it's depicting Boris Johnson as a clown hmm. uh, in the front cover as well. Um, but I think, again, um, when you listen to other radio shows as well, yeah. when, you listen to, when you read the papers, um, it doesn't, you don't need much um, you know, convincing hmm. to, uh, to understand how much of a, um, how much it was, how much the situation was dealt with in a, such a inept way. Um, of course, there was the, the furlough scheme and everything, mm. which did come mm. out very quickly yeah. and did help some people, but it was also a failure for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but I mean, again, this is something which is in the papers, yeah. which is uh, which is dominating it today. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, the, the the government is there to serve the people, right? Absolutely. And, um, there, there's some you know some schemes, some some things that they put forward, some proposals, but. At the end of the day, you know, if something goes wrong, they're not held accountable and they're not, uh, no one questions them. No. Right? There should be like a committee, you know, for example, the a lot of like, uh, I don't know how much billion was wasted on the test and trace system. Right? Yeah. And uh, now the HS2, uh, HS2 rail, yep. they're saying they will reallocate the money to, to elsewhere, which will be better for the country, which is in the tens of billions. Yeah. The budget for that. Tens right? of billions? Tens of billions. Oh, wow. So... 
let's, I mean, let's see where that one goes. Yeah, I think it's yeah. um, it's also funny because they can't really do much to Boris mm. Johnson now. He's not in the part anymore, not yeah, really yeah. in cabinet. And um, now he's also there's also news that he's he's joining the the right wing GB News as well. So it's like they kind of get rewarded mm. for for mm. their views anyway, mm. and that's kind of attuned to quite a lot of what the right wing mindsets have in mm. within the within Britain. Yeah, and he was saying the things that they wanted to hear, mm. and that's why perhaps he was able to get away with um, a lot of what he did. Yeah, he did do same the same thing we could see in America as well that. With Trump, how he was able to, hmm. you know, commit such um, atrocious acts and vile um, deeds, hmm. but at the same time get away with it all, yeah. and have people who back him no matter what. So, I mean, there are always those kind of voters as well, those hmm. people who hmm. who are looking for leaders who, you know, have those values that they have, and they they won't really mind what kind of um, personal things that they do or you know the, the vile acts that they they commit as well. But you know, even like if you're speaking about Donald Trump, you know, he yeah. in the media, the light they showed him with the light that was shown on him yeah. was cu- always a negative angle. Well, it depends which news you you're, you're looking at. But m- yeah. I'm saying talking about mainstream media, right? Okay. If obviously if you delve into, you know, there are like many clips where mm. he's actually, you know, you could say he's a decent, he was a decent president. Yeah. <laughs> and the policies, the policies he had, and yeah. the, his presidency on a whole, compared to the previous presidents. You could say it was a decent. Yeah, I mean, like even um, like the world was calling out for change uh, once he, <coughs> once he was gone. Yeah, and we thought President Biden. A lot of people, well, yeah. including myself, thought that mm. President Biden would be a change in the right direction. Mm. And it seems that to me now that that was a mistake as well. Yeah, how you know we just brought ourselves upon to more troubles mm. in some senses, mm. but at the same time he does champion some rights of, for example, the whole women's rights as well yeah. to abortion. All that he spoke yeah. in favor of that. But a lot of the other things you can see how he's been very. Mm. Um, it looks like he's just been stumbling uh, throughout his uh, his presidency. Yeah. Maybe you know, it's just a thought that I'm putting out there. Maybe you know, there should be like a age limit to <laughs> of what when you like until you can be president, right? Uh, I think a lot of the times people are thinking he's had a had a stroke during his yeah. address or something. Yeah, he's just a lot. Where he rambles. Yeah. Don't know what he's like, mm. <laughs> Let me sum up America in one word, and then he goes yeah. on like a fifteen cent, fifteen word sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, again, mm. like we're talking about the headlines. Um, it's not just the inquiry, which is the yeah. headlines. I mean, even in the in the Guardian, um, there was obviously this is a big, a big story. How there was a mm. graveyard for children. The airstrikes killed dozens at Gaza refugee camp. Um, again, we're going to speak about this in the next, yeah. in the second segment. But um, that in itself is an international humanitarian war crime to kill. Um, people at the uh, refugees, refugees, especially at refugee camps, who have, who do not bear arms, hmm. um, you know, they're helpless and they need the aid hmm. um, to go and bomb them. They, you know, Israel obviously they they they, um, they justified it by saying they killed one of the Hamas leaders. Yeah. Um, but to what ex- to what expense? To whose expense? Hmm. To the expense of those poor refugees, and it's, it's said about fifty odd um, refugees were killed because yeah. of that. So you the know, Guardian all, does, does also yeah, feature that on the front cover. It's on a different story that, you know, there was also a big outbreak of bedbugs in France. Yeah, yeah. And apparently it's landed in London as oh, well. God. The London Library ha- the London Library has a big, uh, has had a big, like, pest inf- infestation of uh, bedbugs. <laughs> and there's been an outbreak and, you know, parents and children have been forced to leave uh, immediately. Yeah, I think that the worrying thing was yeah. when, it, when it reached the, like, the metro and, the, you know, the, hmm. the, the, the train lines. That's when it can yeah. easily spread to, to all places. Hmm. Um, I mean, there's gonna be a lot of head scratching there yeah. <laughs> in the libraries for the yeah. wrong reasons. 
Uh, but yeah, so it's a, it's no, a fear. You know, the, 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 the thing is, bed bugs can carry like diseases that can, you know, be essentially be fatal even. Really? Yeah. Oh my goodness. So you have to be very careful. Yeah. Hopefully we don't turn into the French as well. <laughs> Start <laughs> having their attitude as well. <laughs> Starts, no offence. Automatically speaking French as well. Yeah. I mean, mm. I, I was born mm. there myself. You, I, I yeah, kind of have a token yeah. to use that. Um but at the same time, yeah, it's um, yeah. on a serious note. There's something mm. which is which is alarming, and yeah. um, you know, we you don't want the spread of. It's going. Mm. You know, it's you know, when you have kids as well. Like I don't know, when you get to that stage as well, you're always worrying about things like this, like head lice <coughs> and you know, yeah. bed bugs and illnesses always spreading. Mm. Um, and bed bugs are something that it's just it's just a nightmare, because like, you have yeah. to clean everything and mm. spray everything and. You know, shower and get yeah. use special shampoos and stuff to make sure you kill yeah, it all off. When you know, we we both uh, we were students in the <coughs> Jamia Ahmadiyya UK, which is yeah. a university of uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in uh, in Surrey. And you know, uh, once or twice we got an infestation over there as well. Yeah. And you know, a couple of years back, and then we literally had to clear out all the hostels, spray everything down, yeah, masks on everything. It was it like was, some pandemic. Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was a nightmare. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, especially if at night you're trying to sleep and you're mm. getting bitten everywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, cause, because because the, the the premise is also used for uh, for guests to come and stay as well during um, the annual convention of the Muslim mm. community in the UK. Um, so for them as well, you're always worried like you don't want these kind of things to you know to spread or to or to reach them as well and to affect yeah. them. You want to have a comfortable stay. Mm. Recently, cool. you know, in, in in our community as well, in the in the like last month or two, there's been uh, a lot of Jalsa Sirotun Nabis, which is basically like a, a gathering, annual gathering that we do, where we hold speeches and uh, you know, in in regards to the Holy Prophet and uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and his various you know deeds, his various actions that you know we follow in his footsteps and stuff, and you know we praise him. Uh, which have been really good events and you know even at, at, at the International Talim Quran Academy the office where I work at where we teach the Holy Quran online we had uh, uh, one of those gatherings online with uh, the children uh, so they could take part and you know it was a very good turnout and uh, you know the children did speeches and it, it was it was really good wow wonderful yeah but yeah uh, I guess that really covers mm. the the main news headlines the main news headlines uh, so We'll be taking a very short break, dear listeners, and then we'll be moving on to our first segment of the morning that there's an increased number of people waiting 18 months for NHS care. So don't go anywhere and do join us after a very short break. I am a Muslim woman. Modesty is my choice, my freedom. I have my own mind. I have my own voice. I invite you to listen and to look beyond. I am a Muslim woman. Throughout history, mankind has always yearned to know the true essence of beauty. Some have sought beauty in the sights and smells of this world, others in the human form, and more still in the bounties of nature, in orchards, meadows, and streams. However, the highest form of beauty is to be found only in the divine being who is manifest in every atom of this universe and whose love gives life its sweetness and freshness. In a world of fashion icons, Mary is an example for Muslim women precisely because of her devotion to the Divine. And of course, one of the most iconic features of Mary's image was her veil. Across many faith traditions, the veil is a symbol of devotion. It is worn during prayer, symbolizing the idea of taking yourself away. 
from the gaze of the world and turning to your creator. English poet William Wordsworth wrote that true beauty dwells in deep retreats whose veil is unremoved. It is this brand of beauty, the truest and purest kind that we seek. Living in today's society, there are many misconceptions surrounding the hijab. A lot of questions arise in people's minds. Does the hijab oppress women? Does it hold them back from achieving their dreams? To me, nothing could be further from the truth. The hijab has given me true freedom, and it has given me a sense of identity. Far from being an inhibition, it has only ever enriched my life. We live in a world today where the female form has lost all its sanctity and is objectified only to serve the male gaze. However, Islam teaches that women are not objects, but beings made to live out the fullness of life, the spiritual and intellectual equals of men, made not to bow to the dictates of fashion, but to serve only the divine. I'm a student of Arabic and Persian at the University of Cambridge, and I'm enabled to live, learn and flourish here while wearing my hijab and holding on to my identity. Having lived in both the Middle East and Europe, I have lived and studied in both East and West while wearing the hijab. Islam lays great emphasis on the education of women, and today, members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Women's Association pursue their studies at the highest level. We read, write, and think without inhibition. I am part of a team of women's writers from the community who take part in the National Dialogue on Islam. I enjoy writing blogs and articles, and I'm also part of an all-women's radio team who research, produce, and present hour-long discussion programs on a variety of topics, with a focus on the role of faith in modern life. In March 2017, a group of Ahmadi Muslim women participated in a solidarity vigil arranged by a women's organization after the attacks in Westminster Bridge. In taking part in the vigil, I stood with my fellow demonstrators against extremism and for peace. Ahmadi Muslim women today follow many different paths of life. However, wherever in the world we may be, in the East or in the West, one thing is for sure. Our hijab is our identity. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, welcome back to The Breakfast Show, dear listeners. We will be getting into our first segment of the morning, titled, Why NHS is struggling other than the pandemic in the recent years? What has the government done and what else needs to be done to support the NHS? So patients uh, have had to wait over 18 months for NHS treatment in August, despite promises made by the government. The CEO of Nuffield Trust, uh, Thea Stain, has expressed alarm about this situation, particularly as we head into winter. We're witnessing a record number of 7.75 million people on the waiting list by the end of August. It's important to note that doctor strikes are having a significant impact on the NHS ability to reduce waiting times, and efforts are being made to reduce pressures on hospitals, including the introduction of virtual wards for at-home treatment. And our healthcare system is facing remarkable challenges, with many healthcare professionals experiencing burnout as we gear up for our busiest season. So, you know, 7.75 million people on the waiting list, that is a big number. That was uh, they're waiting at the end of August. That yeah. is, um, that's up from seven point six eight million in mm. July. So I mean, it's just increasing. It's just increasing. It's not, it's not going yeah. down. The whole yeah. point. I think one of the pledges of the um, of the prime minister mm. was to um, was it not to reduce waiting times or something no. like that? Yeah. Um, I can't remember if that's the exact. Oh, to get th- to get more more staff in, in into into the NHS. I think there was, there were f- like five pledges mm. said like you know stop mm. the boats, um, 
uh, reduce uh, inflation or that kind mm. of thing. I think one of them was to reduce the waiting times of the for patients. Yeah, in different ways that they are trying, but it's clearly it's not really. Um, but you know, this is one of the reasons that you know they're they're pushing for privatization as well. And people yeah. say if it does get privatized, these waiting times will be reduced. Yeah, uh, it's. I mean, another sixty-five thousand people added to that waiting list mm. since the last um, record since since July. Mm. Um, and and you know that this time the time is increasing for how majority people have of to these wait. people would be those people who are you know the working class and yeah. they they can't afford privatization exactly, anyway yeah, exactly and if they do they have mm. to sacrifice a lot like you know yeah. to to be able to afford mm. that and you know that's just something which is a very difficult decision some people have been forced to make because mm. of the the situation yeah um but again you know something really strange happened to me um just the other day i i, mm. I received a a call mm. from the nhs uh, from my from my hospital and they said you have an mri scan on your on your right mm. um ankle and i was like what it's like when <laughs> when did I ask for an MRI scan for my ankle? And I'm thinking this is something which probably happened a year or two ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking I can't remember when <laughs> I went to the hospital for this. Well, like, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> but it seems I finally got my turn. <laughs> but I'll I'll definitely ask them when I do go. Yeah. When when did I actually request uh, <laughs> you know for something like this yeah. to happen? But it just goes to show that you know this is like this is too long. It's mm. too long. People have act genuine issues yeah. that they're struggling with in day to day life. People are waiting for like you know uh, big operations that yeah. uh, uh, are you know affecting the quality of their life, and there's nothing being done about it. I mean, yeah, not enough yeah. clearly. Yeah. Um, you know, with the doctors on strikes and stuff, mm. and the lack of staff. You know, the the pay not being as high as it should be. Um, you know, hospitals being run down. And they 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 all pledged as well the whole government to mm. you know to build more hospitals and you know that's not really being fulfilled either. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's 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 a crisis which is just growing mm. and growing, and mm. so there needs to be a solution to that because as you said, the, there are some people who've just been forced to then go to. And you know the strikes, yeah. uh, as mentioned, are significantly you know affecting this as well. Mm. But you know they they they're asking for higher pay. That when you get higher pay, inflation goes up accordingly. Yeah. What, how, how can we find a fine balance in this you know in this line what do you think well, I mean it's a difficult thing because that's something for the government to decide yeah. what where I mean, can, unless, where you know, can they, they make cuts the Islamic uh, yeah. you know finance system uh, but then uh, it it will be otherwise it will be you know a bit difficult um, so we do have online with us our first guest of the morning uh, who will be uh, speaking to you about this uh, Dr. Said Muzaffar who is a consultant general and um, a surgeon in the North Lincolnshire NHS Trust. Good morning, peace be upon you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the breakfast show, Doctor. Ji, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum as uh, uh, So, uh, doc- uh, Dr. Said Muzaffar, could you please tell us a bit about yourself and what you specialize in? Um, I'm a consultant colorectal surgeon <coughs> in North, Northern Lincolnshire Ghoul NHS Trust. My main responsibility is dealing with patients who have got colorectal problems. As you know, colon cancer is the second most common cancer, so that is my main workload. But as general surgeon, I do general surgical on call and manage patients with minor conditions like appendix, hernias, and um, other minor general surgical conditions. So that's what I do day to day. Why do you think the NHS waiting times are still high? Um, it's a combination of uh, factors. 
uh, is uh, due to chronic shortage of doctors, nurses, and it's ever-increasing demand and um, technology getting better. We are being able to provide more treatments to conditions that we couldn't offer any treatments. So it's actually a combination of uh, things that have resulted in a, such a large number, as you were discussing, 7.5 million patients on the waiting list. This is quite uh, frankly very embarrassing for uh, doctors, nursing, uh, and all the professions. Uh, so, um, w- w- what is the process of patients getting onto the waiting list? Um, we, um, um, you know, um, the, how the NHS system works, which has got non-urgent conditions, we go and see your GPs, they refer patients to hospital. Any um, orthopedic problem, they'll come and see an orthopedic consultant, any eye problem, they'll go and see an eye surgeon. Any general surgical problem, they'll come and see a general surgeon. They assess, do some investigations if required, and then put patients on the waiting list. So that's one way patients go on the waiting list. Yeah. The other is that um, you come into accident and emergency, um, by yourself via 111 or your GP will send you to an emergency. They think you've got a hernia or you might have a broken bone or, or, or any condition and then the on-call team will see you. If it's urgent emergency, then you're admitted and dealt with on the same admission. Hmm. But if it's not an emergency, then you go onto the waiting list and then you go home. Yeah. So these are roughly uh, the two most um, sort of common ways that patients are put on the waiting list. Hmm. So in, in terms of the private sector, are they handling the waiting list in the same way? Um, uh, yes. Um, uh, the short answer is yes. Hmm. Uh, but the system is slightly different, unfortunately, in images that you uh, go and see a consultant. And because it's not uh, very busy, rather than putting you on a waiting list, you are more or less uh, given a date or given a time scale that in the next two, three, four weeks, hmm. you come in and have your surgery. At a specified time, you've already chosen a consultant who will be doing your surgery, and you've chosen a hospital. So it, uh, unfortunately, is uh, a uh, not a double standard, but you know it's a different way of uh, getting treatment. Hmm. Hmm. And what are some of the consequences the NHS could face if waiting times continue to increase? Um, it's very worrying. Hmm. The first uh, thing is that uh, you're not on a waiting list uh, just for the sake of it. You've got a problem. Yeah. Uh, an old patient who has got arthritis and needs 
a knee replacement or a young patient who needs a knee replacement or hip replacement is in pain. Hmm. So to leave them for six months a year, they can't work, they um, are in pain, they can't do their things well. Um, so uh, it's uh, the suffering. Hmm. That's the one uh, problem with working this. The other is that if system is uh, inundated, then the most urgent patient gets delayed as well, and that is to do with uh, cancer patient, cancer treatments. Hmm. Uh, so that is not only suffering, but that sometimes can harm uh, the patient. Uh, we, uh, as doctors, especially as consultants, make uh, priority all the time. Hmm. And we've got to do that more uh, frequently now than before so that patients don't come to any harm. But inevitably, the delay is there. And uh, that has both psychological issues for patients and sometimes even medical care is delayed. Hmm. So it's, uh, you know, it, it, it affects both. Yeah. Um, uh, psychologically and physically, uh, these long waiting places. Yeah. Um, do you think the if uh, the NHS was to go completely, completely be privatized, do you think that it would be better for the country and you know better for the people, and waiting times would be lowered? Um, the, 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 uh, I, I think that you, you can't say yes or no. Hmm. Um, but I think it will probably be a big step backwards if we lose our NHS. Hmm. We mustn't forget NHS is one of the best healthcare systems in the world. Hmm. And uh, when it's run properly, it works extremely well. Hmm. And to lose that and to say that we can't manage waiting lists, we'll go to private sector is... Um, uh, going to be a disaster for NHS. Hmm, I think I think you need to be pragmatic hmm. and use hospitals and have uh, NHS as we know for um, emergency and cancer patients and all those uh, acute and emergency conditions hmm. and standard straightforward things could go out in the community or in private sector. Yeah. But to dismantle NHS and go down the private route, we'll have a country like America where half of the population doesn't get treated properly. And uh, they, don't have a, they don't make any excuses with us. They say, yes, that's what um, life is. But we shouldn't go down that route. Hmm. We need to be pragmatic and uh, use our resources intelligently Hmm. And that way we'll, we we can manage waiting lists and yet provide a good care to the patient. Yeah. And w- what are some of the ways that, you know, this whole system, uh, uh, this whole waiting list uh, system can be rectified? I think uh, what government doesn't understand is, and that um, has created all this, is that, NHS has always run on goodwill. Yeah. Um, nurses, doctors, and some managers, they put in extra hours to get work done. 
Yeah. And um, if you dismantle that goodwill, hmm. and if you say you are an ordinary worker, uh, then you look at the watch, and when time finishes, you have to go. Hmm. But that's not how uh, we are taught medicine. That's not how NHS has run up to now. And uh, that's what they are forgetting. Hmm. And, you know, these strikes that after decades and decades, hmm. why is that? Why is the doctors never striked? Because that's not the teaching, that's not the norm. But they have pushed and pushed junior doctors and, of course, senior doctors um, to a place where they have left with no other option but to strike. Hmm. So uh, they must realize that NHS works on goodwill. Yeah. And they need to uh, inculcate that in nurses and doctors, listen to them, appreciate the uh, amount of work that they're doing and the effort that they are putting in. Mm. They, um, it sounds a bit of boasting about yourself, but the fact is that in medical schools, first two or three percent of uh, your um, upper uh, achievers go into medical school. Mm. So, uh, you know, these are the people who are cream of the nation. Yeah. They have put in the most long hours, and you need to you need to remunerate them uh, accordingly. Yeah, you know, the, uh, my heart bleeds for these junior doctors. They are not even paid as much as um, an ordinary worker was get paid. Yeah. So, what is the incentive for them to be a doctor in the first instance, or? To say in UK, that's why there's uh, mass activists. Hmm. So uh, I think they need to value their workforce. And then you get the best out of them. And this meeting list will um, be tackled much more easily if you require a motivated workforce. Then hmm. uh, the pressures uh, will not be a problem. They will find ways of doing it. Uh, I think you need to let uh, those who know their job best make the decisions. Definitely. Um, uh, not somebody sitting in our retirement. I don't know whether I've answered your question or not. No, no, yes, you, you have, you have, in your own way. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, yes, you have answered the question. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, um, Dr. Said Muzaffar. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, for now, have a good morning. Take care and peace be upon you. Thank you very much. Jazakum Allah. Assalamu Rahmatullah. I think one of the one of the one of the key points he's mentioned is the, that feeling valued. Yeah. And the yeah. junior doctors and mm. doctors in general. Mm. I think that's something which um, which has been lacking for a number of years now. Mm. Uh, in terms of the pay, in terms of the workload, and we should be listening to them a lot more to help, try to help them mm. to maximize you know what we get out of the NHS mm. if we really want it to to survive and to work. Yeah. But I mean, we have our our next guest on the line now, mm. who's Dr. Aziz Hafiz. He is a a medical practitioner, Dr. Aziz, um, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah, peace be upon you, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. It's lovely to hear your voice once again, uh, Dr. Aziz. I've, 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 on purpose, I've given you a short um, uh, introduction because I'd, I'd like you to tell us about yourself and um, if you could tell us what you specialize in as well. So, 
<laughs> I serve as a general practitioner in Eldwick Bingley, West Yorkshire. Uh, and I'm also a GP trainer, so I train the new GPs. Uh, and and my, my role includes teaching the medical students uh, from Leeds University. I also have an interest in palliative care. Uh, and as so, you know, I, I serve as chairman of Humanity First UK. So you're very much on the front line in terms of um, when people do have issues, They you're one of the first people they'll, they'll probably see, right? Uh, in your area, any, in, anyway. But, um, you know, what are your thoughts, um, you know, on the waiting times that are increasing in the NHS? Is is a big issue. What, what do you think about that? So clearly, there is no denying the, the waiting time is massive in in the the NHS. Uh, I think the, the waiting list at the moment, um, uh, off the top of my head, uh, in secondary care, is about nearly 7.5 million as of May, May this year. Uh, so that is a massive, massive uh, amount of people. And there's a number of factors uh, there. Uh, it, it's very easy to, to simplify things. But uh, yes, we, we blame the pandemic. And yes, the pandemic has had a part to play. Uh, but we, we suffer in this country, uh, sadly, with, with poor workforce, workforce planning. Uh, I mean, in the health sector, workforce planning needs to be over 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 a number of years, decades, rather than short term, because you can imagine how long it takes to train uh, a doctor up to a consultant level, to GP level. Uh, you know, you're talking sort of ten plus years in in total. Uh, so you you need to at least be ten years in advance, knowing the demographic situation that the country has, knowing the growing older population that we have. Uh, the economic constraints that we have due to a global economic crisis, uh, and now with the global conflict uh, teetering on the edge, uh, those situ- that situation will sadly, sadly only increase. So it is no surprise that the pressure on waiting times, both for uh, elective uh, admissions uh, and also challenges with, with acute situations, is, is huge. And because of Sadly, workforce issues, we, we do, don't have enough consultants and we don't have enough GPs and we don't have enough nurses. That, that's the harsh, harsh reality. Uh, so these are the challenges. This is why you see, you're seeing frustration across the board. There are other challenges as well. We as a population, we as a society, our expectations have changed hugely since the NHS was formed in the 1940s. <laughs> Uh, there is an expectation of, of having things instantly. Uh, there's probably, and I'm my personal opinion, uh, probably less self-reliance uh, on, on on managing certain things uh, that otherwise would have been managed uh, uh, using other resources uh, and now, are now sadly left to the, the NHS. Uh, and this would not be the situation would not be complete, the discussion would not be complete without mentioning the the huge issue that we have with social care. I said earlier that we have a growing elderly population. With that, we have a huge strain on social care and social services. Uh, And that puts a massive strain on getting people out into the community, therefore having a backlog, and then you have a backlog within hospitals, uh, and it ends up becoming a vicious circle. I tried to give that in a nutshell, but no, I, I that's hope, absolutely fantastic. I hope that's giving you a flavour of where we stand. No, it's, it's, it's really, it, it ties in as well with what we've been discussing um, in the news as well, with you know the whole COVID inquiry as well. How how can the prime minister then, 
you know, when he knows all this is going on, like he must be one of the most well-informed, like the most informed as as the prime minister, you know, of the demographic of the of the country. And knowing that it is an aging population, he knows that this is a big issue that, you know, which is having a strain on the NHS, having a strain on the hospitals, having a strain on the doctors themselves. Um, you know, to then go ahead and, and, you know, say utter such words where, you know, they have to, the elderly have to basically accept their fate and take the brunt of the situation right now um, at the time of the pandemic, that kind of thing is then, it just makes it even more uh, unacceptable to hear such words. Um, but again, it, it seems that he's driven by maybe a decision to do with the economy, to save the economy, maybe in that sense, um, as you mentioned, how much of a, um, it causes the backlogs, how much, you know, you know, how many resources go out for, you know, for the elderly as well. Um, so I'm not, yeah. uh, I'm, 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 I'm sadly not a politician. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to, t- trying to t- link the two. I won't be yeah. able to comment, but uh, <laughs> I, I, can, I can only comment on what we see on the ground. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I mean, you've, you've mentioned um, quite a lot of the, the ongoing problems. I mean, as a, as a GP um, tra- trainer, you said you, said you train GPs as well? I do. So yeah. I, I, I'm privileged to help train the new generation of doctors yeah i mean if i if i'm looking at this as a, as a junior doctor and i want to become a gp i'm looking at the workload that is um, required of me now i'm looking at the hours that are required of me and i'm looking at the pay that is coming with that why is it that i'd want to become a gp um what incentive is there at the moment it doesn't look like um people it doesn't look very appealing as it would have looked part in the past if that makes sense um can you give a bit more you know delve well, into that a little bit more there's a there's a there are a number of things here. Uh, a career in medicine, whether that's in secondary care or whether that's in primary care, uh, is is based on on an underlying passion to serve. And if that underlying passion to serve is is not there, these extraneous factors that help sort of waylay you, uh, financial um, uh, reimbursement. Yeah. Uh, workplace conditions, um, manpower conditions, workforce issues. These then, no doubt, are huge pressures. No doubt, are huge pressures. But they take they take center stage then, when or if your underlying reasoning, your underlying driver for uh, for serving, uh, gets pushed uh, uh, further and further and further and back. Yes, doctors are not charities. Yes, they need to put food on the table. But there, there is no denying there are no doctors out there starving. There's no doctors not able to put food on the table. Uh, there are no doctors living on the street. Uh, so we have to acknowledge that despite the financial pressures, despite the huge challenges, uh, we as a profession are in a very, very comfortable position compared to the vast majority of the UK. I mean, I, I I agree with that, and um, but at the same time, there were there were some news stories about some doctors or junior doctors who were at food banks. How 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 does that make sense when you know they should be in a comfortable position, but at the same time they're not able to even provide the basic needs um, in terms of food? You're you're right. I, I I don't I don't deny that that there are situations, particularly with our junior doctors, because having come out of university. They are saddled with huge amounts of debt during those uh, educational period. And yes, there are cases, and I have seen cases myself. I know of colleagues, myself, uh, 
But uh, if you look at it as a holistic view, as a holistic situation, uh, the profession such is not all out in food banks. I don't want to belittle the, the challenges that are being faced. Yes, they are being faced. Yes, remuneration is a challenge, particularly at the junior level and across all levels. Uh, uh, and it's an argument that is being had. It's being had with the NHS. It's being had with the state, uh, as you'll have heard from other colleagues. Uh, but I, I talk on general principles relative relative to the situation that we face as a country. Absolutely. Uh, it's very important to mention that as well. Um, I think we've talked a lot about problems now. Um, if, we, if we have a couple of minutes left, if we could just um, quickly talk about how we can prevent you know, this issue escalating further in terms of the waiting lists. Is there anything you could quickly mention in terms of what we can do? So my, my personal view is the key thing, firstly, is, is workforce planning. That's not going to solve the problem, but at least over the next 10 years, knowing where our population is going, knowing what the needs are, and ensuring that we have sufficient recruitment from within our country, primarily, if we can't, then from abroad, to ensure that we can maintain those staffing levels at nursing, at doctor level, and in at carer level. That's the first thing. Short term, there needs to be an emergency plan across the UK, uh, state-led, led by the NHS, looking at what resource we have, what we can provide, what we can safely provide, what things the NHS can no longer provide. Uh, we have to have a, a harsh decision as to what is no longer able to be provided. These, yes, the NHS is free at the state of uh, at the at the point of service, but it just needs to be thought about very carefully. And one final thing, especially for our listeners out there, um, you know, what can patients do to reassure themselves whilst they're waiting? I think there's a lot of help out there on the NHS website in terms of self-care. Yes, I must say that whenever, if there's ever a concern and you are feeling concerned, do, do discuss with your GP. Do discuss with your GP. Yes, they are heavily stressed and stretched, but... Uh, don't suffer in silence. Uh, on one hand, yes, the system is under extreme pressure, but on the other hand, we have a duty of care to our patients, and if they are worried, they need to speak to someone. Dr. Aziz, it's, um, it's been a pleasure as always to speak to you. Um, I've definitely learned a lot from from a little conversation we've just had, and um, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the rest of the day. And thank you very much for for joining us on the show. God bless you. you. That was uh, Dr. Aziz Hafiz, who's a medical practitioner uh, and a GP. Um, he's given us some really good insights into mm. kind of the, the challenges faced by, by the doctors and also kind of give us a, a good outline to what we can do, um, what are the issues that we can resolve, what we have to accept as a reality now that the NHS can and cannot provide. Mm. These kind of things are something maybe we need to just accept that we're not in a situation where we can provide what we used to a decade yeah. ago or even yeah. five years ago. Um, and just like our first caller said, we have to, you know, value hmm. our workers, our junior doctors. No, but you know that, that that just shows that instead of progressing, we're, we're going back, we're going backwards, yeah. we're digressing, right? And, but you know, in this day and age, we should be taking a step further, progressing, and going on to better, leaping onto better, better platforms. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so, dear listener, we'll be taking a very short news break, and then we'll be discussing this topic further. Don't go anywhere, and do join us after a very short. <laughs>
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Voice of Islam. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim in the name of Allah the most gracious ever merciful so you know we were discussing earlier with uh, our guests as well in regards to <clears throat> the long waiting times of the NHS sorry about that and how how it's been struggling in the recent years due to the pandemic and you know what steps the government can take to ensure the betterment of the NHS and uh, for it to succeed and you know serve the people in a better way um, the, the Humanity First, you know, it is, um, as we spoke to one of the directors of the Humanity First, Dr. Aziz Hafiz, uh, who is also a medical practitioner. Um, you know, the Humanity First is a charita- charitable organization of the MDO Muslim community and, uh, you know, it serves many different um, uh, hu- humans, essentially, you know, worldwide, uh, doing many, many different outreach projects. Um, Irrespective of their religion, yeah, the color, yeah, the, wherever course, they're from, um, it, it, you know, as I mentioned, it is a registered charity as well. You know, so there's many different projects going on in the world. They've, such as like Water for Life and stuff in in in, in Africa, yeah. and they've served um, in 2019 alone. They've served like around half a million, pe- more than half a million people. Wow. So um, they've they've helped more than half a million people in 2019 alone, and you know, it's, it, it is increasing year by year. I think um, a, a really important um, aspect of it is th- yeah. the way that they deal with um, the way that they deal with the, the money that comes in and the, the way that mm. they deal with the relief yeah. that they give to the people. They maximize <laughs> um, all the efforts and all their resources to, to, to give to, to the people who actually need it. Mm. And I think there's, there's Muslims and non-Muslims alike. As I said, it's irrespective of religion, creed, class, yeah. culture. There is, they give uh, humanitarian efforts, um, you know, aid to everybody. Hmm. And those people, they acknowledge that um, compared to the humanitarian relief agencies that they have seen, yeah. Humanity First uses its volunteer army hmm. to ensure the administrative costs are kept to minimum so that the maximum amount of money can be used to provide support and assistance hmm. to those who need it most. That in itself, I think, uh, like kind of encapsulates what Humanity First is about. Yeah. And, um, you know, Definitely. despite being... It's not the, the largest... Um, Hmm. you know charity in the world yeah but what it does in terms of its output is hmm. it's, it's extraordinary hmm. and i've seen that first class as well in first hand hmm. where in countries where people actually need medical care where they need water for life as you mentioned that's one yeah. of the projects that yeah. you know the the eye project the gift, gift for sight, gift the for sight I, yeah. exactly yeah. all those things i've seen how they, Orf- they there's like orphan care there's many model, different disaster, model villages disaster well. relief yeah. model villages yeah many I mean, different so projects. Many, i mean it's, it's a but we, we do have a a clip where we, we do have a brief audio clip like in regards to the humanity first so let's listen to that hence it is up to the members of humanity first to strive earnestly seeking the betterment and well-being of mankind Never rest easy or feel satisfied with what has gone in the past. Rather, look to the future and see how and where you can increase the scope of your service for humanity. It should always be your objective to provide provide the maximum possible service whilst utilizing the minimum possible resources. So that was His Holiness, the current Caliph of the MDM Muslim community, may Allah be his helper, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, 
mentioning that you know the responsibility of the manifest is to you know always have maximum output while utilizing the minimum amount of resources you know which is a great you know um great thing that we can take away from that you know that is what is um, the humanity first is also doing as well and it is the footsteps uh, it is the guide uh, under the guidance of uh, his holiness that you know humanity first is thriving as it is yeah. and helping all those that are in need this was in a um, in the humanity first conference in yeah. 2021 that his holiness has risen with swan and the strength in his hand he was um, addressing members of humanity first And I think there's there's another quote which I'd like to read out it's very important um, yeah. which he said in the same address he said that Allah the Almighty and his messenger have instructed Muslims to seek to alleviate the pain hmm. of those who are suffering from ill health to provide them with medical care to tenderly care for them and to regularly inquire after their health in this regard the holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him said that whosoever visits a sick person for the sake of Allah a heavenly caller will announce may your every step be blessed and may you be rewarded with an abode in paradise not only has the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him instructed muslims to provide relief and treatment to those who are unwell he has also given the glad tidings that those who make heartfelt efforts to care for the sick will be rewarded in the hereafter consequently those who spend out of which allah the almighty has provided for them to build hospitals and clinics or to provide healthcare are those who are actually building their homes in paradise what a lovely wonderful message this is mm. from his holiness that you know we're instructed to look after them not just not just for the sake of just looking after them he said to tenderly look after them and to look after and to ask after them see how they are regularly yeah this is something which um, which is very important and mm. and you know it comes with a glad tidings mm. that you know when you do take care of these people and when you do build these hospitals and these clinics and these schools you're actually building yourself um you know a, a, an abode in paradise mm, mm. what a wonderful reward this is for those who you know who do volunteer and let's be clear there's a lot of volunteers for humanity first who do come forward and they go to war torn areas they yeah. go to you know grief stricken areas mm. where the you know the, there's so much strain on the people there and there and so much poverty mm. um and they help them helplessly sorry mm. the, um, what's the word selflessly, selflessly apologies yeah, yeah. um you know they don't think about themselves they're doing it at their own costs hmm. and um this is something which is a unique hmm. aspect of the of humanity first and his holiness really hmm. is honing in on the purpose of um, why they has been hmm. established and, and the goals that they should have hmm. and this is something which is based upon islamic teachings yeah. we're here at the voice of islam we're here yeah. to provide the true teachings of islam i say this again and again every hmm. time i'm on hmm. because it's very important that the world knows that muslims are not there to you know to bring war to you know to to you know separate families mm. to kill people just if they don't want to become muslim or if they if they choose to leave the religion it's the opposite yeah. we're there to bring love yeah. and to bring tenderness and to bring peace in every area that we go even when we build mosques people mm. fear them mm. but his holiness continues to allay those fears mm. and say that you know in fact mosques are here to bring peace to establish brotherhood mm. and to establish the rights of not just god but also the the whole neighborhood all yeah. the all the people who yeah. are nearby you should you should see this as a symbol of peace and hope and 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 um <coughs> and um you know brotherhood mm. so i mean uh, putting all this together mm. let's go back to the subject at hand is um the nhs and the strain mm. which is on mm. it in terms of the in terms of the um the waiting list yeah. and with it we've discussed also an aging population Mm. Now all of this comes hand in hand when we think about you know the the, the whole system and the mm. network that people should have in place to be able to deal with these issues 
to be able to you know deal with the waiting times to be able to deal with the you know the lack of resources in the NHS or you know all of these things go hand in hand and muslims mm. have, have you know islam has provided a kind of framework where mm. everyone is tended to no mm. matter who who they are we're always looking after our families we're always looking after our friends after our neighbors mm. if everyone had that attitude where we're all looking after our neighbors even for, even he even said that 40 houses down mm. they're still part they still come under as, as your neighbors mm. those who travel with you um you know on your commute to work they mm. they're also deemed as as your neighbors so if we're all looking after those people imagine what kind of society we'll be living in where we all know who's suffering and, and what we mm. can do to then to, to help them as well at the moment what it's like is uh, you know everyone's got their headsets on or mm. you know they're on stuck to their screens yeah. to their phones nobody asks about one another and islam has said no this mm. is not the way the way is to actually look after one another to ask about ask after one another and um and to be there for each other mm. this is this is the framework yeah. which we which we have been given in islam and that is how i feel that it will be one of the solutions to you know to helping those mm. who are you know are suffering right now and you know they don't know where mm. they're going to get the help from you know the, the, uh, one thing i think that you know we forget is that money or currency is a, is a, it's a mad, man-made construct yeah right um you know some, someone once said that you know we're the only species in this world that pay to live on earth <laughs> right and That's true. it's just because someone's laid claim to the land but oh, i'm not saying you know without money it would be very difficult for the world to function but money shouldn't be a cause of problems no right it should be a solution <laughs> it, should, it should be a cause of solution yeah but you know due to like lack of funds there's many things that are going you know they they they're not working properly for example obviously the nhs is doing the best that they can yeah. or you can look at you know uh the postal service or even the thames water you know there's many many different things that aren't working properly due to suppose a supposed lack of funds yeah it's you know the, the government needs to manage everything properly and govern everything properly and just make sure that you know the country is being run properly oh yeah it's easy to say i mean it's no i know it's yeah, very easy to say uh, then then <laughs> you need people who are just i think yeah. that's what it is there's yeah. a lack of justice at the moment uh, uh, what well, my point is that honesty. you know money shouldn't be the cause of problem yeah i mean i think a lot of hmm. they say money makes the world go round yeah so i feel like a lot of the the decisions which are made are hmm. based on or motivated economically hmm. and it's not really about where can we actually hmm. help the people it's about how can we make a quick yeah. buck out of yeah. this or but at the end of the day money? like the, the the rich are getting richer yeah uh, the the gap between the rich and the poor is increasing, increasing day by day yeah. and that's the issue isn't it yeah. i mean again the inequality more, the inequality, inequality is yeah. there and islam is there to to make sure that yeah, that, that, you know, the, that that that, that flow of, that flow of cash hab- mm. is um continues mm. between through all of society mm. and it has set up the system where the rich mm. uh, give to the poor especially yeah and uh, we where we all give even the poor give you know even in the time yeah. uh, even uh, there were many different companions of the holy prophet yeah. which were extremely rich yeah but you know it wasn't like out of proportion yeah in terms of the society right during yeah. the times of uh, hazrat umar the second caliph uh, yeah. um of islam um you know may may allah be pleased with him there was like an abundant of uh, you know at the times uh, the, the the treasury of 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 islam there was yeah. there was an abundance yeah. a great abundance where there weren't you know men, like no one was laid, really lying on the streets or anything everyone was well off at yeah. that time during the golden age of islam as well yeah but uh you know But how you use it, how you yeah. manage it, um, and I feel like, you know, nowadays, the well-being mm. or the welfare of the state is mm. not 
as much a priority as you can like mm. I go back to the words of Boris Johnson mm. if you really cared about the whole of you know the UK citizens mm. all the UK citizens a lot of them are elderly mm. and you wouldn't just <laughs> you really cared about them, you wouldn't just say like they should just accept their fate now they they, they should die basically mm. save us some beds save us some money whatever it is um that that goes against our principles that goes against morality mm. um even a, a you know an, an atheist or somebody who doesn't believe in god has the the common decency to to understand that and and have the same sentiments um but this is the problem that we have you the know thing, the salary yeah, of the yeah. prime minister is 100 plus k okay and the well. salary of a, a member of parliament is 80 plus k wow and um, they get second homes they they they're, they're governing <laughs> the country yeah you know they they're supposed to govern the country mm. right now, i'm not saying that they're not it's not deserved or whatever yeah. but the minimum wage you compare that to an average worker who's working if not more hours even the doctors let's look yeah. at the doctors <laughs> even look at the doctors their salary is not that much yeah. but yeah i never saw a um, a member of parliament or like mm. a politician and uh, they allowed second jobs as well right exactly yeah yeah and majority of them do have uh, some yeah. sort of yeah. business or something going on But anyway, but yeah, that's that's another topic maybe we can discuss <laughs> yeah. it another time. So, dear listeners, we'll be taking a very short break. We hope you've been enjoying today's sh- uh, show so far. It's a live interactive show. You can call us in at any time at 02086877878 or tweet us at the Voice of Islam UK. Don't go anywhere. Do join us after a very short break where we will be discussing the Hamas Israel war and upholding basic human rights. Allah, Allah. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. A new station, The Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with The Voice of Islam. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim in the name of Allah the most gracious ever merciful welcome back to the breakfast show dear listeners so uh getting straight into the second segment of uh, the morning the Hamas Israel war uh amidst the complex and endearing Hamas Israel war this segment delves into you know fundamental principles of basic human rights it examines the challenges faced by individuals in the region particularly the innocent civilians and explores the imperative of safeguarding their fundamental human rights amidst the ongoing conflict we will shed the light on the significance of upholding these rights emphasizing the broader implications of justice compassion and global solidarity in a, a protracted and sensitive geopolitical context so um you know um what what are, what are human rights basic human rights you know yeah uh, it's like ensuring you know your dignity your safety and the well-being for all individuals and you know according to equality and human rights commission human rights are the basic rights and freedom that belongs to every person in the world from birth until death they apply don't they apply regardless yeah. um, they apply regardless um, wherever you, you are exactly. what you believe in or how you choose to live your life i mean uh, <coughs> i mean there's there's a lot of things we can talk about yeah. because like the universal declaration of human rights as mm. well yeah was the first legal document to set out the fundamental human rights hmm. and ensure they are universally protected. Yeah. And this is commonly like um cited as well especially with what's going on in, <coughs> in, in you know in Middle East at the moment. Yeah. 
Yeah. This document actually is extremely significant mm. in helping establish a legal defense for victims of mm. human rights violations. Mm. You know, as you said, as you mentioned, as like dignity, safety, yeah. and overall well-being yeah. um, of the citizens should be the utmost importance to governments. Mm. Mm. And among the other human rights, it includes the freedom from discrimination, mm. the right to life, and the right to a fair trial. Mm. Um, mm. But now that if we look at in Gaza, if we, it should be noted that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's clear. It's clear for anybody to see that, um, you know, these many of these rights um, are not there. They're mm. lacking. Mm. But we do have uh, our guest on the line now. We have Dr. Jason Hart, who is um, a social anthropologist by training. He joined the University of Bath in September 2009 after seven years as a researcher and lecturer at the Refugee Studies Centre um, at the University of Oxford. Um, he's also a visiting lecturer at the Centre for Children's Rights Studies at the University of Geneva. Good morning, Dr. Jason, and welcome to the show. Thank you for, for joining us. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Um, for our listeners out there, why were humanitarian laws and even the UN uh, sustainability goals created? Right. OK, well, I'll take the humanitarian law yeah. piece first, because the sustainability goals are something rather different. So... Um, Humanitarian law is something that has been developing for, uh, well, certainly since the late 19th century, but uh, there wasn't until uh, just the period just after the Second World War, there wasn't a clear statement about the treatment of civilians and about the protection of civilians in war. And given the experience of the Second World War, where many, many civilians were killed, um, in terms of you know, aerial bombardment of cities, in terms of dropping the nuclear bombs on um, Japan, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yes. in terms of the actions of the Germans, um, including their occupation of, Czech, of Czechoslovakia and obviously the wholesale murder of, of people. So after the Second World War, there was uh, obviously a motivation to establish a clear statement about how uh, ordinary civilians, not combatants, but civilians should be treated in war and in the aftermath of war. And what's particularly, I think, important when we think about the Middle Eastern context and we think about the Palestinians is the fact that the, the uh, what is referred to as the Fourth Geneva Convention, yes. the statement of international humanitarian law that was developed after the Second World War in light of the Second World War, has a large section, a large discussion about the treatment of people living under occupation. Now, that was motivated by what the Germans did in Czechoslovakia, but very clearly applies to Israel's treatment of the Palestinians living in the occupied territories. So when we talk about Israel's violations of international humanitarian law that we can see happening right now, we need to bear, bear in mind that Israel was in gross and systematic violation of Geneva Convention, the fourth Geneva Convention, even prior to this re recent uh, violence and recent warfare. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is something that's been ongoing. Absolutely. Um, it, it's something that is evolving as well. International humanitarian law is not fixed. It is evolving. Um, there are additional protocols that were brought in in the 70s and I think the early 80s. Um, the, the other thing to say, I think, that people need to, to realize is that all member states of the United Nations signed up fully to the Fourth Geneva Convention, to this statement about the treatment of 
civilians in warfare and in the aftermath of warfare. So everybody uh, agreed to be bound by that uh, statement, um, but in reality that's not what's happening. Um, but I'll hand back to you. Yeah, I mean, very well explained. I think um, you know, we talked about also the UN sustainability <coughs> goals. Can you explain a little bit about what that what those are and uh, why they were created? Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. So this, the UN Sustainability Goals um, come after what was referred to as what was called the Millennium Development Goals. So these were statements about how uh, the world's nations and the peoples should all be working towards creating a more sustainable world. Um, it addresses issues such as poverty, such as access to education and other basic, uh, basic goods or basic rights. Um, in 2015, the Millennium Development Goals were completed, if you like, that period that they should be realized in was were completed, and in their place came the Sustainable, the sustainable Development Goals. So again, they, they're, broadly speaking, they're addressing many of the same issues around poverty, around access to basic uh, services, around justice, about inclusion, and so on and so forth. So in the context of what's happening in Israel, Palestine at the moment, the Sustainable, sustainable development goals are not uppermost in people's minds. They're not immediately as important uh, as a reference point as international humanitarian law. But in the long term, in terms of the flourishing of societies, the flourishing of the planet and so on, the sustainable development goals are very important. You mentioned earlier about mm-hmm. how, how the members states, they, um, they all fully agreed to adhere to the humanitarian, humanitarian laws to the Geneva, Fourth Geneva Convention as well. Um, yes. But what importance do these laws actually hold in this day and age? Like, I mean, from the outside, it, it seems that it could be mere verbal agreement, and there's no. not really any accountability mm. if you do if you adhere to them or not. So, what kind of importance does that hold? You know, have these laws been made based on evidence-based research? Well, yes, absolutely. As I mentioned before, the the Fortune the Convention was. Um, brought into being as a consequence of actual activity that took yeah. place during the Second World War that particularly led to the, mur- the the killing of civilians, the destruction of civilian infrastructure and, and mass suffering and discrimination and racism and so on. So, so was, in that sense, it was absolutely based on evidence. But in terms of your question about the importance of international humanitarian law, in a sense, the importance is... Created or the extent of the importance relates directly to the seriousness with which member states of the United Nations choose to to, to 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 take. So you know, if they choose to ignore international humanitarian law, then inevitably that undermines uh, the authority, the importance of international humanitarian law. When another conflict emerges somewhere else, you know, people can can point back and say, well, you know, nobody bothered about international humanitarian law then so why are you telling me that you know i have to act in particular ways so that's why it's really critically important that any conflict that breaks out all parties to that conflict should abide by international humanitarian law not only for the civilians in that situation but also for the long-term ability of the world to live and to conduct itself in an organized and and reasonable and proportional way I mean, absolutely. I'm really. I agree with you 100. percent There's something which um, the the words humanitarian law, international humanitarian laws have been broken. International humanitarian laws have been broken here and there. It's been repeated again and again in the current the war that's going on. 
What happens mm. if we don't actually adhere to these laws? Will mistakes of our history repeat itself? I mean, I think back to the League of Nations, where similar they had a similar objective in, um, you know, trying to prevent further war warfare um, throughout the world, um, and it had mm. similar you know similar laws as well, um, if I'm not mistaken. So what what happens if we don't adhere to these laws? Like, what kind of authority does the UN actually hold in um, you know in enforcing them? Well, I mean, sad to say, you know, if if parties to war, and I think this is particularly relevant in, in you know, currently with what's happening in Israel, Palestine, you know, if there isn't that adherence, then we we run a grave risk of simply repeating the past. You know, the Fourth Geneva Convention came into being with that spirit of never again, never again should people be murdered, you know, wholesale, slaughtered wholesale the way that they were through the Second World War and indeed before the Second World War. But 1994, uh, you'll recall, there was a horrendous genocide in Rwanda. Yes. Um, and out of that, they be- there came certain new initiatives, you know, to try and ensure that something like that would never happen again. Um, but so far, we're not seeing clear and universal adherence by parties to conflict of 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 these laws that that you know they're they're cherry picking as and when, um, and I have to say I mean a very striking example of how international humanitarian law is being undermined is is the stark difference in the way that Western leaders in the U.S. in our country in the European Union and so on the way that they're responding. To the to the situation in Ukraine and the Russian invasion and the violence that the Russian uh, military has inflicted on the Ukrainians, you know, which is called out by our political leaders as clear violation of international humanitarian law. And yet, when it comes to Israel-Palestine, they don't apply the same standard. They, you know, we we heard, I think it was yesterday, Keir Starmer being vague and saying, you know, even as a human rights lawyer, that's his background. Yes, it's he, very that, shocking that he know, said that as well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He, you know, that, that it was, you know, not his role as a politician to determine whether what was happening in Israel-Palestine constituted violations of international humanitarian law. Whereas when he was talking previously about um, Ukraine, he was very clear in his... Very open about it, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, there's, there's that clear double double uh, standard. Sorry, sorry to to, to cut you in. Yeah. To cut in, but um, yeah. that double standard is what you're trying to highlight, right? That we're in one situation, what's happening in Ukraine, everyone's quick to condemn it and quick to, you know, to to claim that this international law has been broken, that international law has been broken. Whereas on the other hand, we're very very careful, and in fact, we're almost closing our eyes to what's actually happening uh, in terms of the the politicians and um, mm. these major powers. And that's something which has yeah. um, been very detrimental, and at the cost of the you know the civilians. Um, yeah. So, so that that kind of leads me on to my next question: Is that why then do the innocent citizens, um, you know, deserve access to humanitarian aid? If 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 the world is turning or kind of turning away, I mean, I've heard that you know the, our our country is also sending aid. The U.S. is still sending aid in the millions to you know to the to the to the Gazans to the Palestinians there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but why do they deserve it if uh, at the same time we're also allowing it to happen? Okay, well, just in terms of the aid that's going in, um, I was trying before I came online this morning looking for the latest figures about aid trucks going in. Um, and it was, as of Monday, 118 in total had gone in, you know, in this whole period. And everybody is clear that what is needed as a minimum 
for that population is 500 trucks per day going in. And we're talking about 118 trucks over effectively three weeks, I guess it would be. So, you know, the aid is coming in in dribs and drabs, but it's nowhere, nowhere near meeting the needs of, of you know, the population that are trapped within Gaza. Um, in terms of, you know, why people should, civilians should get aid, I think alongside international humanitarian law, we need to look at the evolution of our thinking and our laws around human rights. So 1948, before the, the formation of the uh, Fourth Geneva Convention, 1948, we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, again, which all members of the United Nations, uh, you know, agreed to, which lay out very, very clearly people's inherent rights as human beings, as, you know, as civilians, uh, you know, and that includes receiving basic humanitarian aid in terms of food and water and medicine and so on. The things that the Israeli government are preventing or have largely prevented coming into Gaza and have only recently allowed to come in in quantities that are nowhere near enough to meet the needs of a, of a desperate population. Dr. Jason, I mean, this is like um, something I've been thinking about. You know, the Rafah border, which is, um, they say it's controlled mm. by the Egyptian uh, authorities, right? Um, yeah. Why is it that Israel is then able to dictate how much aid is going in and out? Uh, or you know how many trucks are uh, lorries are able to go into Gaza to help the people there? Shouldn't it be something which is controlled by the you know by the Egyptian authorities? Yes, but you know there are effectively you know two barriers. There's the Egyptian side, and then there's the Gaza side, and the Gaza side is controlled by Israel. So you know it it takes both the Egyptians and the Israelis. Yeah, I mean yeah, so, I mean. The, the outwardly claiming that they they care for the civilians and the the, the most moral army um, in the world, but at the same time, yeah. this is they let just as you said they're letting just dribs and drabs in, just drops in the ocean to to help yeah. the population. And from what we've been reading and what we've been hearing as well, is that they kind of want those no refugees now, if you want to call them the to go to mm. to, to the, the Sinai area in um, in Egypt. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it kind of feels like they're being forced out of their own country as well. Like even if they do stay, what do they go back to? All those homes have been destroyed. Um, the whole infrastructure yeah. has been just just leveled to the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so what 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 does the world what should the world do in such a in such a situation? Well, the world needs to stand up for uh, international humanitarian human rights laws as absolute basic. And it needs to make Israel accountable for its violations of those laws. Um, you know, in the same way that they are calling Russia to account and they are opposing what Russia has been doing in Ukraine. We need to apply the same um, standards, not necessarily take the same action, but apply the same standards to Israel, you know, as, as a party to those uh, various conventions and, and international laws. Um, they need to be held accountable for, for failing to uphold them. Um, can I just address the, uh, the, the point that you made in passing about, you know, the, this rhetoric about Israel being the most moral army in the world? I mean, you hear it repeated endlessly. Yeah. The facts obviously speak to a, a completely different reality. And I, if, you're, if your listeners are interested to know more about this, I would recommend that they look up um, an organization called Breaking the Silence. This is an organization founded by... Uh, former uh, military people in Israel, former soldiers within the Israeli military, and they post reports about the things that they have been asked to do 
when they were serving in the military, you know, the ways in which they are encouraged to violate the rights of the Palestinians, um, to commit acts of violence upon the Palestinians. Indiscriminately as well, right? The, the way that indiscriminately, they, yeah. but, also, but also targeted. I mean, they're also, you know, when, when Israel says that, you know, they're doing everything they can to avoid civilian casualties in Gaza, mm. that, you know, that in their own words, you have government ministers, you have um, military uh, senior people who are making it absolutely clear that they, they're not interested in distinguish, distinguishing between civilians and, and Hamas. They basically want to think everybody should be killed or as many as possible, you know, before they then get pushed over the Egyptian border um, to take up residence in Sinai. So they're not actually making the distinction, you know, and then we can see on our TV screens, you know, you're, you're flattening whole neighborhoods and saying that you're doing it in order to, to take out Hamas. What you're doing very clearly and inevitably is killing huge numbers of civilians and, and also, burying them up. Yeah, and also risking the lives of the, of the hostages as well. Well, yes, but uh, again, uh, you know, you know, your listeners might be interested to look up the the uh, notion of um, the Solomon. I think it's the Solomon Option. Um, it's referred by d- different names, but um, Solomon Option, I think, is one of them. The Solomon Directive, and so on. So this is the principle that was established, I think, in the 80s. Could be the could have been the 90s. That you know that that civilians, Israeli civilians, that are captured should um that, that basically they they it is permissible to allow their deaths from the israeli point of view if for a larger political goal so they would not the implication of that is that ultimately saving the ref, saving the um kid, the people who've been uh, kidnapped yeah. is not going to be the highest military priority even if, if they gets, even if they say it is I mean, we we keep yeah. hearing from them that it is the high, the highest priority, but the yeah. actions say well, speak otherwise. Yeah, well, absolutely. And what also speaks otherwise are the demonstrations of the families of the people who've been abducted. Yes, they have been amongst the most outspoken critics of Netanyahu's government and the, and and of their actions. Um, and people are mobilizing around that. They're realizing that there is a whole game going on here, which is not simply and purely about, you know, just immediately dealing with Hamas and its rockets and so on. That there is a much, much larger political agenda at play here. I mean, they've they've called for ceasefires, um, but Netanyahu has said that the ceasefire is basically declaring defeat to Hamas. So they've basically, mm. he's basically saying, I don't I don't care for what's going to happen to you, to your families and friends who have been abducted and we will not give in to that. Um, and we will mm. not give that chance um, of exchanging hostages. I mean, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna, I don't know. Maybe it's a bit controversial, but why yeah. do you feel Israel is being treated differently to Russia or to other places where you know war crimes are, international <laughs> law has been um, yeah. violated? Well, I think that it's it's complicated. There's a lot of different reasons, and you know, different people, different actors, you know, are motivated by different considerations. Clearly, there is. Uh, you know, uh, an underlying sympathy and concern for the experience, the historical experience of Jewish people, and obviously the the, the Holocaust was 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 one horrendous, absolutely horrendous um, incident or you know event uh, within that history of oppression and violence and discrimination and r- racism that that Jewish people have suffered. So there is that, you know, which is you know absolutely understandable and important to acknowledge and so on. 
But at the same time, there's also a lot of uh, pursuit of self-interest, you know, by politicians, by corporations, you know, big is, particularly in, in sectors such as the arms industry, there are huge deals, huge profits to be made by, for example, British arms companies and American arms companies working hand in glove with the Israeli arms industry. So that's, you know, very clearly it's in their uh, economic interest and in the interest of profit to, to be absolutely unconditional in their support for Israel. Um, politicians have been cowed. They've been, uh, you know, put in situations where, for the sake of their own careers and their advancement and so on, it is advantageous, clearly advantageous for them mm. to throw their in with Israel. And, and whilst at the same time, in many cases, um, suggesting that they are being honest brokers, taking a neutral line, and, and in, in effect, nothing could be further from the truth. Dr. Chris, I've, I've, held, I've, I've kept you for a long time. I just, want to, I just have one final question, because you've also mm. served as an advisor to the UN in the formulation yeah. of studies, guidelines, and policies. I mean, yeah. I mean, the world is crying out for an international body to be able yeah. to actually enforce its, um, assert its power and to, you know, prevent what's, you know, further warfare because it's clear that this is now spreading to other regions and it, sure. is, and it could spill over to even, you know, into, on the international stage. So, um, you know, why, what, what can the UN actually do? Why are they not actually... Um, you know, enforcing their policies. Yeah. What, what, what is the situation there? Why, why are they so? Why does it seem that they're so powerless in this situation? Sure. Well, obviously, um, the Secretary General yeah. uh, Guterres has been one of the uh, leaders, political figures globally, who has um, stood up and, and called for a ceasefire, and, and he should should be recognised and applauded for doing that. And it, I'm sure it wasn't easy to do that. Um, in terms of you know why the UN is so powerless. It's important to understand that meaningful action, um, such as that required to, you know, enforce a ceasefire, has to has to come from the UN at least. It has to come through a decision of the Security Council. And as we know, there are five permanent members of the Security Council: the US, the UK, um, the French, the Russians, and the Chinese. And if any of those five use their veto. <laughs> Even if they're the only member to do so, then you know whatever the initiative is, whether it's to issue condemnation, whether it's to commission some kind of action, that will fall. And the U.S. has consistently, over decades, used its veto repeatedly to invalidate any effort to rein Israel in, any effort even to condemn Israel for certain uh, violations of international law. So. You know, there's no there's no way forward with that through the Security Council as long as the U.S. continue to use their veto in the way that they have done in the past. And the sad thing is that people then turn around and say, "Oh, the U.N. is you know is ineffectual. The U.N. should be doing more," and not acknowledging that the U.S. in this particular uh, issue has basically undermined the uh, Security Council, used its veto to ensure that the U.N. becomes irrelevant. So, in terms of addressing the situation. So in essence, you're saying that this this uh, abuse of the veto power is what mm. is undermining the efforts of what UN actually want to achieve, the objectives that they have. None of those are being able to be fulfilled or realized because of this veto power that is um, yes. exercised against their wishes. You know, if the majority see something as wrong and one sees it as right, yeah. then it doesn't matter what the majority think. 
So absolutely, yeah. and and just you know just to clarify as well, mm. because people may have been watching the events in the UN General Assembly, which all member nations of the UN are part are part of, and they have voted overwhelmingly for a ceasefire, but they don't have the uh, authority that the Security Council has. So so even if you get a majority vote in the General Assembly, it doesn't lead to action. You know, 120 member states voted for a ceasefire. Um, but there is, of course, no ceasefire because, or not even an attempt that the UN General Assembly could um, make in order to ensure that a ceasefire is, is, is brought in. I'd love to keep talking to you, Dr. Jason. It's been, uh, I know it's been a long time, so I'll, I'll let you go here. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And um, thank you so much for all your insights and, you know, being part as, as, as an advisor as well to the UN, helping us to understand how this has all been formulated, what can be done, what isn't being done, and how we can move forward. Um, it's been a really, really interesting for me in particular, and I hope for our viewers as well, our listeners. So thank you very much, and uh, have a lovely uh, rest of the day. Thank you very much, Dr. Jason Hart. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right. So that was uh, Dr. Jason Hart, who um, is a social anthropologist by training. Um, he's been employed as a consultant, author, um, as a researcher, evaluator, and trainer <coughs> by various UN governmental and non-governmental organizations, mm. including like UNICEF, Save the Children, yeah. um, Care International, etc. So, I mean, that's, um, I don't know about you, but I, I felt like um, mm. we've got a bigger picture, kind of, or, or yeah. more of a clear image yeah. of, you know, the issues that are being faced within, within the UN itself, within, and why the humanitarian, international humanitarian laws are... Mm. Um, not being adhered to what can and can't be done, hmm. um, you know. But at the, at the end of the day, it's the poor, um, innocent civilians who are paying hmm. the price for this uh, inability to, you know, to for action to be raised or to be taken against the perpetrators. I think they should be like, uh, you know, how he was speaking about the U.S. using, you know, their veto power. I think they should be like a limit to how how many times you can use it. You know, like once every <laughs> five years or something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think as hmm. as the, the His Holiness as Mirza Musharramad as Mirlabi's helper has spoken against, um, you know, the veto power. How mm. it's an unjust system yeah. in itself. Yeah. You know, like how can the mm. whole world mm. condemn something and, and then one, just one, one person, nation is able exactly? It's, it's te- technically, it's just one person. You yeah. Know? If you have a group of a hundred people in one room, yeah. one person says no, then yeah. those ninety nine. Yeah. In essence, he did yeah, say that the yeah. Security Council has five members. Yeah. But even then, mm. one out of five, mm. um, it should like if we if we go and mm. if we look at other systems, the majority mm. normally gets the vote. Mm. Um, when you're voting for for a, you know for yeah. the you know for a party, it's not the the member the you know the party that has mm. the lowest votes mm. that gets the into power. So I don't understand why the same doesn't apply here. Mm. Um, but I mean, it's a very this is an ongoing situation. Mm. There's something which is evolving every day. You know, there's a lot of yeah. uh, you know a lot of people from the Jewish community that are standing up as well yes. and saying that the you know what Israel is doing is not in our name. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a distinction mm. I feel between yeah. uh, um, Judaism and yeah. Zionism. Zionism, as well. yes, definitely. And a lot of people who even like, they came as refugees to <coughs> to Palestine in, yeah. in, in the late 1940s and the yeah. 50s onwards, yeah. and they were. They After were the welcome there, even though even though they yeah. were not consulted. The Palestinians mm. were not consulted in this mm. decision mm. to allow um, the Israelis mm. to come to this, make their, their own state there within yeah. their country. 
um, they still welcomed them with open mm. arms and they took care of them as refugees, as, you know, people who are, are, are facing mm. terrible atrocities around the world, like um, Dr. Jason mentioned, in, um, yeah. you know, with the Holocaust, with what was being done by Germany, mm. by, you mm. know, by Hitler and the Nazis to the Jews. All of this is we, we absolutely condemn. Mm. And as Muslims, we would help our, our fellow human brothers and sisters. Mm. Um, as I said, no matter mm. color, creed, religion, caste, yeah. any of that. Um, but the moment what's happening is they've turned on their mm. hosts mm. and now they're kicking them out. Mm. It, it feels like they, mm. they're turning against them. And, you know, it's not just that you're occupying them mm. and you're controlling the the gas, the mm. electricity, their water, mm. the telecommunications as well. Mm. So when you have all of that in the hands of your enemy, mm. they shouldn't be seen as the enemy anyway. They shouldn't, there shouldn't be this notion of Jews are mm. our enemy. As you said, there are many Jews yeah. who speak up yeah. against what's yeah. going on. Yeah. But the current government mm. and the authority there and the army, mm. the way that they have been dealing with the with the civilians is, is yeah. something which is for the world to see. It's mm. not we don't I don't have mm. to say mm. what it is because we can all see it now. We're in mm. a day we're mm. in the age of social media. Yeah. We're in the age of, you know, we can see everything at our fingertips. Mm. Mm. It's right there. Um, and also, you know, if it was just happening in Gaza, even then, you know, to some certain extent, you could argue that, you know, what's happening is it's understandable. You know, Hamas is... Yeah, they, they govern the... Go, they govern Gaza, but yeah. it's happening in the West Bank as well. Absolutely. And, and that's literally 100% the whole area is controlled by Israel anyway. Yeah. I mean, like, it's... Um, the Palestinians living in the West Bank as well, they're suffering as well. Absolutely. There's there's lo- a number, yeah. of, number of people are being killed yeah. there um, on a weekly basis. You can mm. see the numbers going up mm. there as well. But the problem is um, that... People will say there's an agenda behind what what's <coughs> happening, and you know a lot of the, the Zionists will say yeah. that in the end this land is promised mm. to the you know to the children of Israel mm. and it belongs to us and um, you know. But you know the, the the belief of the Orthodox Jews is that you know they they are still in the state of exile, as stated in the scripture, so they 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 don't believe that this land belongs to them. A, a lot of them are against yeah. it, yeah, yeah, because they've lived in peace. Even mm. those who came. As I said, after the after World War Two, yeah. who came to Palestine, mm. they saw themselves as Palestinians, yeah. and they lived in peace and harmony mm. with the with the local community. Mm. And that actually, I wanted to to bring that back to the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, because that's our model. Yeah, he's our model and he's our example. Mm. And he showed how, even in Medina, mm. when he migrated, him and the Muslims migrated to Medina, they had the whole charter yeah. of Medina where the Muslims would protect the Christians and the Jews even the idolaters mm. and the Jews would do the same and the Christians would do the same and the idolaters would all do the same but if any of those groups were attacked everyone would help one another to, mm. to defend them yep. and that goes for all the all the, all the the groups so this is what we can follow if mm. we want to find a solution to what is going on the Muslims and the Jews and the Christians but we have to remember like it's not just Muslims being killed in Gaza it's Christians and, and other people as well Druze and you know especially the you know the the hospital, the Lahni mm. Hospital. That mm. was a it's um it's run it's a Christian yeah. hospital, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, um. So the whole issue is not based on religion. Actually, mm. Mm. this is something which is um, geopolitical, as mm. His Holiness has Rasulullah has has mentioned a number of times. And um, you know, to get the solution, we mm. have to at the very minimum establish justice. Yeah. And um, you know, this is not what we're being what we're seeing today. Mm. And the world is not standing up for justice, unfortunately. Mm. And we're seeing the same errors being repeated again and again mm. and again and again every single time this this matter is raised. But at the moment, because of this, what's happened since the seventh of October, mm. this whole 
um, people want to say conflict, mm. but I, 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 I don't want to use that word because it has a lot of backlash as well, because it's, it, it implies that the two sides are equal, mm. whereas in reality it's stones being thrown on one mm. side and bombardments after bombardments after bombardments on the other. Of course, there were. I'm not going to mm. deny that there were lots of missiles sent and 1,400 um, Israelis um, were killed, and mm. we absolutely abhor that as well, and we condemn that. Mm. Um, but the proportionality in what's going on right now is absolutely absurd. Even for the most right-wing person, you can say, yeah. if you look just 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 at the numbers, mm. then you can see that there's a clear imbalance. Um, but that's what happens when you see when you may deem a, a, a people as as inferior, mm. or as in the words of some of the ministers themselves, as animals. Yeah. And, and and they're barbaric and they're being they're being labeled as terrorists as mm. human shields and that's enough of the enough of a justification for them to be slaughtered mm. so i mean this is something which will be ongoing for an, hopefully <laughs> i hope <laughs> it finishes today yeah, but yeah. It, the reality is it's going to keep going on like yeah. this and even get mm. worse mm. and um we've, we've had repeated warnings that it could spread to um spill out over the region and his holiness has said that this could not just spill into the region of the middle east but also to the rest of the world mm. so you know we can see that with the US coming in as well with their warships coming in you know all the battle um, you know equipment that they're sending over mm. so I mean again we can talk about this on yeah, and on and of on. course, but, of course. Um, there is a brief uh, audio clip of His Holiness that we would like to share with you guys so let's listen to my name is Ataul Haq and my question is the situation between Israel and Palestine is very bad these days. What will be the effects on the world? I have already spoken in my Friday sermon on this issue. The effect on the world is quite clear that these people are uh, trying to not only to harm themselves, but they are trying to doom the world. The world is going towards its destruction. And uh, as I have already said, it is not going to stop here. It will escalate and more nations will be involved in it and quite possible that nuclear arsenal is also used in this war. So we should pray to save the world from the destruction and we should pray that Allah Ta'ala give them wisdom and Allah Ta'ala give the capability and wisdom to the big powers to use Justice. So that was His Holiness, um, the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, may Allah be his helper. Um, I'd just like to, you know, we are coming to a, conclu- a conclusion of today's show. I'd just like to read some some of the f- uh, further sayings of His Holiness. Um, so, Hazrat Mizar Masood Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, he says that Israeli government officials say Hamas killed our innocents, hence we will seek revenge. <coughs> This revenge has now exceeded all limits. The loss of Palestinian lives, as reported, is four to five times greater than the loss of Israeli lives. If the aim is to eliminate Hamas as they hoped, uh, as they so claim, then they should directly combat them. Why are they killing women and children and the elderly? They have also deprived people of water, sustenance and medical care. This is where all claims to human rights and rules of warfare cease to exist when it comes to these governments. And, you know, His Holiness uh, further stated in another occasion that in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty has repeatedly instructed true believers to fulfill the rights of mankind and help all those in 
need or who face difficulties of any kind. The Quran has particularly emphasized that the need to help the most vulnerable members of society, such as those who are uh, mired in poverty, uh, who are destitute or who have been left orphaned. And um, so, dear listeners, we hope you've enjoyed today's show so far. We are, we are coming to a conclusion of today's show. So we are, you know, we have reached the end of today's show. We'd just like to thank the producers, Hanya and uh, Hola, and the researchers, uh, Noura, Maliha Kamar, Sarah, Jazba, Hanan and Razia, and the technical department, uh, Brother Akib Ahmed, and my fellow presenter, Brother Nuruddin Jangir, for presenting with me this morning. It's been a pleasure as always, you know, it's uh, just, uh, it's always, it's so great to present at the Voice of Islam where we can present the true teachings of Islam and um, hopefully, you know, the world can adhere to um, the guidance of His Holiness uh, and, uh, you know, we can end this war and live in peace, peace and harmony. So dear listeners, for now, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.